Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Simon Leslie. He is CEO of Inc. You've heard Simon before because he wrote a very fine book called There's No F in Sales. Since then, he's managed to write two more books, one called White Belt Thinking, and uh, the latest one is called Equanimity. And it really charts his journey over the last two years. Um, You may recall he was probably the largest contract publisher to the airline industry. I think he had 36 different airline clients that he was publishing in-flight magazines for. And obviously COVID hit and it did take the legs out of his business somewhat. And uh, instead of giving up, he decided that he had to work out what he had to do next. And so as a result, he's now transformed Inc. from a traditional publishing business to a commercial marketplace for brands where he helps them reach travelers. He's got great inventory and it's better than before. He's managed to secure himself a monopolistic TV network effectively across the entire American airport system. So he's got captive market and all of this as a result of COVID. So you know, every silver lining comes with a beautiful gray cloud. And on that note, Simon, welcome. Thank you. I think as I'm hearing you talk about the first book, there's no F in sales. We didn't realize it would have such a huge impact. That's why none of the other books are definitely going to have a have a negative connotation to them. <laughs> so tell me this then. What what happened? Just take us through that story. It was horrible. <laughs> yeah, I, I might have guessed that. <laughs> you know, every time I I think about this question, I think, why didn't we notice it? You know, we had an office in Singapore that, you know, they were talking about this virus that was going on and nobody was really um, paying attention. We'd had SARS before, we'd had bird flu, and they hadn't sort of come mm-hmm. way over here. And all the clever people who are um, who advised us said, ah, this will be nothing, it'll come and go, it won't really affect the Western world, and if it does, it'll be for a couple of weeks. So that was that was in our, our, our mind. That's how we were thinking. And, and then comes first, second week of March, um, and we started getting phone calls from the airlines. You know, we've decided we're going to take this magazine off the plane. And the problem with that is we've already published it, we've already printed it, we've already delivered it, we've already paid for the journalists, some of our customers have paid for us and they want their money back. So we were completely out of pocket, not just once, but 36 times. Actually, I think wow. we left it on. But, you know, 36 different airlines. So we didn't go from 150 million to zero. We went through, we went through the floor. We went minus. We were, we were having to give people money back all the time. Oof. I mean, what was the experience like for your team at that point? And how, how did you communicate with them? Again, everybody thought it was going to be short. So they were sort of like, okay, you know, let's try and keep everybody sane. I brought in a group of speakers. I started with one and ended up with 52 in the end. <laughs> They'd come in every day or every <laughs> couple of days and talk about all different things, positivity, kindness, motivation, negotiation, selling, closing, gratitude, spirituality, serendipity, you know, all the, diff- all the different subjects. I can really try to engage my teams with every bit of information that I thought might help them want to get through this situation, but also that would give them 
some skills coming out on the other end. It's so interesting that you did not mention a single hard skill and all of those would be soft skills. So what, what I'm curious about is why did you go down that road? Because I think it was at that point, it was an emotional time. People were, were, were scared. The only two things were low morale and anxiety. And I remember one of the speakers saying, you know, who, who's worried? Who's got anxiety? Who's got fear? You know, and it's all linked to COVID and everybody put their hands up. And he goes, and then and this time last year, you had the same worries, but they were linked to your boss, your friends, your family. So all it is is the same problems that we always have, but a different thing to blame. And I think it just needed something. Just take them out of their heads, take them out of the, the reality and the negative news to give them something, give them some hope and some faith. Interesting. Okay, and how did they respond to that? They responded really well. I think towards the end, I think I was making them a little bit too powerful, powerful or confident because a lot of them started leaving. Um, and and that was, that's one of the negative effects of training, right? You train someone up and then they leave. Um, Would you have them back? Uh, I mean, some of them have had three or four jobs since they've left, so maybe I wasn't as bad as they thought I was. No, they, did, they didn't leave. A lot of them left for the, for the right reason. They, they couldn't make any money. You know, our, yeah. our airlines were still were grounded. Their, their products were either closed, you know, indefinitely, either temporarily or indefinitely, and uh, they, they had to make decisions. I'd, I'd always paid a fair wage, but, but very much driven by commission. So if you've yeah. got nothing to sell, you can just about live on your salary and that's it. So a lot of them have created fantastic lives that, and they had very high spending, so they had to go and do something. I understood. I mean, it was a slightly glib question, but actually I've done a lot of work in Scandinavia as when I was headhunting. And what I always found really refreshing was that managers would recommend people on their team for the jobs I was looking to fill. And they were quite happy to do that, knowing that these people would come back at some point if they went away and they were happy. I think it takes quite an enlightened leader to see those softer skills as being central to thriving in tough times. And what I'm very curious about is, I know you've lost a lot of people because obviously the conditions in the market, but how well prepared are you for what's coming? What's coming? You know, everybody's talking about talking the world down. If I don't watch the news, there's nothing coming. I, I feel incredibly positive because the travel market is booming. The biggest problem we've got in the travel market is we're, we're 18 months ahead of schedule. They predicted the, the numbers that we're having today in Q4 2023. Wow. We got them in June 2022. And guess what? They've got no staff. They've got no pilots. They've got no people to run the TSA. They can't cope with the demand that's happened. And, and I always said this revenge travel or whatever you want to call it is coming fast and furious. And you look at the pricing, the prices of flights have gone through the roof. The flights are full. You can't get a seat. You know, I'm trying to get to Singapore. I want to change my flight one day. Nope, completely full. Day after, nope, completely full. The next free flight is three weeks away. I wow. don't remember a time like that. And these are jumbo jets flying across the world. So the market is really strong. So for me, I'm incredibly optimistic. You know, and I hear about the inflation and the interest rates and all the other negativity and the wars. And, and I just say, do you know what? 
brands are still going to promote themselves. We've still got to keep the economy ticking over. So I don't, I don't, I'm not too worried about that. I think the next seven months will be the best seven months we've ever had in the, as a business. Um, I've told my team that. I hope they believe me as much as I believe it, because I just do think that the planes are going to be so full for the next seven months that wise brands will take advantage of this audience. So what are the three to five big bets that you've placed in your business in order to capitalize on the next seven months? I've doubled down on recruitment. I've doubled down on on making sure the team are equipped with the right propaganda to be able to go to market because obviously we've changed our product set, so we need to do a whole new set of media information. And that's it, really. And they've been trained. They've been incredibly well trained over the last two years. So they've had lots of training. We've had more time to train them. They're probably overtrained and probably got training fatigue um, <laughs> because we've trained so much over the last two years. But they are excited. They're having positive conversations. The marketeers are still, you know, because of the news that's going on, everybody is like, I don't even know what to do. I don't know where to go. So I'm just saying, just follow the money, follow the travelers, follow their audience, follow the real audience. There's so much fraud, ad fraud out there at the moment. The only thing I can guarantee you is every single person I'm going to put you in front of is real. They can't skip your ad. They've got to watch it. They've got to see it. They've got to notice it. So, you know, there is no better place to suddenly create an audience, which is I have high disposable income opportunistic, affluent, funny, charming, whatever whatever adjectives you want to come up with. But they are really, you know, this is the cream, this is the cream of the crop, and they're going somewhere else. And they're the people you want to reach at home, but they're not at home anymore. They're on the plane going somewhere else. Very interesting. Okay. And in terms of the way your teams are structured, has that changed at all pre-post-COVID? We had 150 salespeople pre-COVID, and we we probably got about 70 now. And that's not from from a lack of looking for more people. It's just that's the way it's turned out. We've obviously got a lot less products, and the products are, are better products, they're much higher margin products than we had before. We've, in some ways, we've got more opportunity, um, and we don't have to sell as much. Which, again, is the kind of nirvana. You know, who doesn't want to get paid twice as much for half the work? So, again, one of my questions that has really been bothering me for quite a while is why so much effort is put into going cold into a market when there are ways that you can use data, you can leverage relationships and networks, and you can intentionally dive into your network to get access to customers. But the majority of people just insist on direct and cold. What are your thoughts around this? Not many people are doing direct and cold, which is always left um, sort of a nice path for us to trod because people are so happy sending 72 of the same emails with with the the previous 71 in in the chain. Well, that isn't selling. No, but that's the <laughs> communication. But the hardest thing today is to get people on the telephone or to get people to come to a Zoom or to get people to come to a meeting or to attend a meeting. So you really have to be slightly better equipped and, and have a much better process than you probably did before. Before, you could ring somebody up and there's a good chance they might answer the phone or you'll get a voicemail if you left a decent voicemail, they'd phone you back. Whereas today, 
whatever model, whatever tactic you use, the response rate is definitely diminished. And where are you seeing the best response rates? Whatever, whatever's good today is not good tomorrow. It's really weird. You know, some some days we'll find LinkedIn works brilliantly. Some days we'll find email works good. It's that fluid. Yeah. And what are you doing in terms of driving collaborative selling uh, and lesson capture? Because I'm pretty sure, um, given the culture that you've described to me so far, there must be a lot of that happening. What we've done is we've brought a few people in from the airline industry, so people so who, who were our clients who are now working with us. And they've got some great relationships with some of the bigger tourism brands. And if you remember, but pre-COVID, 95% of my business was direct. Yeah. Only about 30% of my business is direct. So we've got a lot better relationship with the advertising agencies. We're starting to get more and more campaigns without us having to bang down the doors as hard. Again, interesting. Is that a function of the shift in terms of your um, inventory or is that a a shift in terms of appetite from agencies or is it something else? Uh, Both. I think it's also a shift in the deal size because the size of the deal has gone gone up so hugely. You know, we're doing much more multi-million dollar deals. They tend to have an agency involved. They tend to come with more people involved. The thing that frustrates me the most out of everything is when an agency emails and there's 27 people on the email. I'm like, how is this effective? You know, how is this efficient, let alone effective? Well, it's not, but it's covering your ass, isn't it? Exactly. You were all involved. You all knew what we were doing. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting seeing what happened over the last couple of years in terms of the managers who were able to really step forward and seize the day and those who weren't. I'm curious in terms of uh, the crucible and the impact it had on your your own management layer. Did you see people crumble? Did you see people shine? How did they evolve? I'd love to hear more about what happened there. So globally, my mid-management team, which was about 25 people, 90% of those left. So they were the guys that ran the business. They took all the crap off of us. They dealt with all the, the, the nonsense day to day. And it really showed, you know, we, and we have, we're slowly starting to add some of that layers back in. But in the, in the interim, so the very, very senior team had to manage all the, all the challenges, getting people back to work making sure the office was clean, making sure we had toilet paper and coffee. You know, so we went, we were all involved in everything. And part of the thing that I I didn't realise is how much of that they took away from us um, early on. Um, I I interviewed uh, Jack Frimston and Zach Thompson from We Have a Meeting, and uh, they said something very funny, which is if you're not ready to be uh, taking out the bins, you're probably going to be doing that as your job. And it's right. I mean, the the number of people who really had to step up and uh, take on more responsibility. But I'm also curious about the number of people who came up from below and stepped forward and volunteered themselves. Not very many. Not very many at all. He had a very young workforce. So a lot of them quite enjoyed the, the concept again and watching Tiger King and sitting in their pyjamas. <laughs> there was a few. There was, there was a few that 
um, stepped up and are still here and they took on bigger roles and uh, they're, they're managing bigger projects now and I think they've they definitely benefited. And, and I really did look after anybody who was, you know, I sort of named them all in the book. There was about 25 people who stood by who didn't leave. There was a few that left and came back, but the majority of them, of those 25 stayed and I've rewarded them, you know, handsomely since. So in terms of where you go from here, because you've managed to pull off a, a quite an impressive turnaround, what's next? I'm still coming to terms with this one. <laughs> I'm very much looking. We've become a home for live sports and travel. We acquired the rights to the NFL in, in the, at the airport, so we now play live football at the airports. And I'm negotiating with the PGA and the NBA and the Premier League to make sure that we can maybe get some rights to play some of their games as well. We also have live sport in flight. So on some of the bigger airlines, the Emirates, the Etihads, Singapore's, we play live sports on there. So if you're flying at the right time, you can watch the Champions League or the NBA finals or the Super Bowl. So I've slowly become a, a mini Sky Sports. So I'm I'm looking for that's why you keep seeing me at all these events, is because obviously, you know, it's business really. It's not it's not pleasure at all. The so the sporting Anything to do with sports is, is quite important. We've done some, some great partnerships with athletes, so we're doing more athletes, athlete-produced content, which gives us uh, other ways to bring brands and athletes together, which I think is quite exciting. And I'm just looking for more inventory. The, the thing that I've got, and this is why I'm quite excited about this so-called recession we're going to have, is all those people who are sitting on so much inventory they can't sell, I'll take it off their hands. So I'm ready, I'm ready with my checkbook if they... They can't sell it. I sell it for them. I've already written to a lot of the biggest outdoor airport advertising agencies in in the world and told them that I'm ready to buy their inventory if they if they need some help. And uh, that's where I'm going to play. I'm going to I'm, I'm going to be the guy that if you want to reach a traveller while they're thinking about travelling, while they're searching for travelling, when they book this travel, when they're in an airport on an aeroplane, I'm the guy you need to speak to. Well, not me. Interesting. My team. Very cool. Okay. So, uh, again, I'm very curious. That one of the things that I've heard something about, but I'm curious if you've got any thoughts on this, is artist or athlete-produced content and then tying that to NFTs. Have you seen anything around that? And what's your view on it? Because I'm completely green, but curious, because it does seem a bit Wild West for me. The cryptocurrency's taken a bit of a beating this week, which means the NFTs have taken a bit of a beating. I haven't really played. I've stayed away from it. I've tried to stick to my knitting and things that I understand and that I'm good at. I have had conversations. I am learning about it. The metaverse is, I'm getting educated about that. I'll be selling things that don't exist in a place that doesn't exist to people who don't exist. Maybe, who knows one day. But for me, for right now, I'm really focusing on real people, real eyeballs, real arms and legs, real humans who are going somewhere, be it for business, for pleasure, or for something else, and not with something which is in the metaverse. So with the shift away from the pixel and you know what Apple's done, presumably this type of very targeted advertising is one of the uh, the better ways to get access to these people. What what are alternatives? I mean, the, the other thing that we did was we we came up with some 
an old piece of technology which allows us to sit on the airline's website and take their data so we know that a nice man like you is flying up to Scotland next week for three days. Therefore, we assume it might be going on business. We might be going to play golf. It gives us a lot of data, which is obviously not going to be as affected by the pixels. But they'll tell us what you're doing. They'll certainly tell us that you searched for a flight to Scotland. They'll tell us you booked a flight to Scotland. And they'll tell us how long you were there for. So we've, we're working with EasyJet. We're working with United, with Spirit Airlines, Singapore Airlines, Malaysia Airlines. It's about 15 airlines globally who've signed up to our technology. And that that's becoming really, really quality data that we're using to, to help brands get, get right in front of the, uh, the travel at the right time. So... One area I'm particularly interested in is these uh, ecosystems. Uh, and I'm uh, very curious to understand how you're seeing travel technology and services start to work together so that the customer or the traveler uh, gets the outcome that they're looking for more effectively. And are, are you seeing that type of collaborative uh, strategic alliance or partnership forming? No, I still think everything is disjointed. I think. We're still competing with our own clients at times. I still find our clients want to talk to the same people we're talking to, and they think they can give them a better product, better service, but I wish they'd just stick to running airlines. <laughs> and, and I find that where there is good collaboration, where there are, where we, we've got great communication between us and the inventory holders, you know, we, we're getting amazing deals done. But where there's confrontation or... Uh, lack of collaboration, that's where the uh, that's where the problems are, are keep arising. I've started to come to the conclusion, and it, I'm amazed it's taken me this long, that real selling should be a cooperative partnership uh, between seller and buyer to solve their problem. But mostly, it's anything but. It's you know, selling at somebody and uh, people buying from there's not a lot of with or we in that equation. And I'm curious, in terms of the way your business has evolved, how much of that was down to speaking to customers and how much of it was down to those 50 speakers and uh, the, the other intersectional, frictional moments that you created by speaking to a diverse range of people and trying to survive? If you think about the buying process, I know you like this. If you think about the buying process, you know, I'm the Turks and Caicos, and I'm going to give your money to an agency in New York who's going to give it to a young person who's going to do the research and the data and come up and do the, the analysis and says, this is where we should buy the media. And I'm not on that list. So I've then got to go and argue to get on that list. And in between times, that money is also going to airlines. It's also going to airports. It's also going to regional bodies. And they've all got their opinion of where they should and shouldn't be advertising. So whatever I get left with is always going to be a, the dregs of whatever I've started. Now, if I'm starting at the, at the Minister of Tourism and I'm having a conversation with him and I'm saying, look, one, this is all costing you a hell of a lot of money. There's so much wasted in that food chain. You're paying him a retainer. You're paying her a, a chunk of the commission. Then the load of your media spend is taking in, in commission as well. So you're not actually getting that full spend spent. You know, you start with a million and about by the time the spend gets actually done, it's about 300,000. Whereas if you give me the million, I'll give you far greater exposure. So I'm trying, to, I'm trying to 
unpick it without upsetting all my partners? Well, actually, it's quite simple. By the sounds of things, the, the client's job to be done is to generate as many sales as possible for their limited budget within the time frame. And if you focus your message around how do we help you make that money go further and deliver the results that you intended, then all of their spending uh, suddenly starts to not make a great deal of sense, given that they're going through all those different layers and 70% of it gets swallowed up in costs. Beautiful thing about the new technology we've got is I can actually tell you how many people we've brought to a destination on the airline themselves. So we're working closer with the airlines. You know, I saw two campaigns this week for, not really competitors, but people who do similar things to what I do. And they were promoting the return that they got for their customer. And I'm thinking, that was like a 97% fail. So they had a 3% success rate and they were boasting how great it was. And I'm thinking, wow. And then there was another one where they were showing the adverts in situ and there was nobody there. And I'm thinking, that's great. You've got a beautiful campaign on beautiful screens, but nobody's looking at them. You know, you can't get, if you can't get your brand in front of somewhere, in front of customers where they're there, real customers, people you want to speak to. Human beings with eyes to see and ears to hear and pockets to spend. I love that, yeah. Okay. Because what I'm hearing you tell me is you have a mechanism to follow the traveler through their entire buying journey the moment they go online and investigate anything about your region, your destination, your airline, your hotel. And you can deliver advertising or content at every stage of that journey. Is that not what you're describing here? Perfectly. And I can tell you how many of them came and how much, how much effect I had on your GDP by bringing those numbers in, how many nights they stayed for. You know, that's a beautiful chain as well because it shows you that if you spent your million dollars with me and you didn't waste it on all these other people, I'll give you four or five million dollars back in, in, in people immediately. And then you've got the afterglow of a campaign. You know, people think that um, the return on my investment is, is what happens in the first 90 days. It's not. You know, some of these things take years to, to respond. But, you know, we're putting the message out there to a perfect audience for you. We've curated that audience. That's, that's the best word, I think, curated. So having curated the audience, how many travellers can you get me in front of if I wanted to? Well, I think yesterday it was about 12 million people who travelled. I'd probably get you in front of about 70% of them. Well, okay. So that is interesting. So you've got me in front of around 10, 9, 10 million of them. and. On both journeys. Absolutely. Interesting. Okay. This then raises some very interesting questions. I went to Nudge Stock last week. And if you've got access to a customer throughout their journey, how? what sort of uh, use of nudges and um, neuroscience and you know, um, behavioral science are you guys employing? Do you, do you have psychologists working on the team, uh, working in the ad teams? Yeah, but that's just to help the salespeople. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say psychiatrists. <laughs> that's keeping them safe. We we did we did we did quite a bit of work with this is pre you know during COVID, really looking at 
the way we go to market, the way we market ourselves, the way we, we, we use the language in our correspondence. So we've definitely, we've used a lot of it. I've had two or three bright, some of them not so bright, some of them are your friends. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You're my friend, so just be careful. <laughs> Very bright, too bright. That's the problem. Too bright for their own good. Too bright, too bright for their own good. There you go. <laughs> but, they, but but we definitely used we used a, a lot of um, of of language and and thinking and thoughts of how we want to reach it. We've also got partners in the group who um, who do this for Amazon as well, where they you know they they look at an Amazon ad and they don't use human behaviours anymore. They, everything is AI. And it tells you exactly what message to put on that ad to be number one on Amazon. And they're looking at our technology that we have for passengers, and they're going to put their, their technology over, overlay that on that as well. Oh, there's someone I need to introduce you to. One of my big, big bugbears is I genuinely believe that leadership and management spends the square root of fuck all time in deep thought by and large. There's an awful lot of tactical and strategies, essentially, still churning out more of the same stuff that continued not to work especially effectively. So in terms of your inner quorum, how much of your time is spent just in thinking? Me personally, I spend a hell of a lot of time thinking. That was one of the things that I picked up through COVID, that I needed to get out of the problem, needed to use a different side of the brain to solve the problem. We spent, as a leadership team last week, four days in a bunker, literally in the bunker, it was below ground, just thinking about what we wanted the, the message to be, what we wanted our teams to feel, how we wanted to feel. And we just walked. We walked and talked. We ate curry and talked. We sat in pubs and talked. We just literally, we used, there was no right answers or no wrong answers, although I did start the the conference by saying everyone is right <laughs> there's no wrong answer there's only a right answer just keep throwing ideas and we just we, we threw so many ideas and by the end of it we've got a really good blueprint of, of what we're right okay so i'm interested in the mechanics of this because um one of the lessons i've really been trying to implement over the last couple of years in particular is creating these intersectional moments where people who don't necessarily have that much in common you get them put thinking and putting together same problem that they're working on and that friction then creates something really quite special and i'm curious uh, how the interplay between people with different disciplines but common purpose created innovation and a competitive advantage for you you have people challenging each other and not scared to challenge each other that challenging environment i don't know who invented water but it certainly wasn't the fish um, <laughs> thing is we're in this environment and we're we're the only way you you take a fish out of water that's when they have to learn how to breathe and live and then you put them back and they go back to the way they were right so we as human beings are just in our environments we're in what we're doing so you've got to take them out of that environment suffocate them a little bit so they, they have to really really think about what it really what uncomfortable looks like and then you put them back in the environment again and then i guess that's what i did Okay, so how did you create that tension, that constructive tension? By being me. <laughs> Just by turning up. <laughs> Your glittering personality, oozing with charm. <laughs> I have a lot of high opinionated people sitting at my senior level 
and they all they all they all strong personalities and I think it was really, you know it was good for us to challenge each other and to to question each other about what we thought was right or wrong and in order to prevent that from getting out of hand first of all what are the values that you as a leadership team share we want our staff to be better we want to leave everyone we meet better than we found them and we want to help people to achieve the things that they don't think they're capable of achieving. And it's not how good they are, it's how good we can make them. And they don't know how good they can be because they haven't got that, they haven't got that information yet. So our job is to help them and embody them with belief and confidence to achieve anything. I'm curious about the kind of ethos that your sales team has or the one that you're trying to create now. Is it top of the leaderboard, dog eat dog? Is it we cooperate, we collaborate, we're com- friendly, competitive, we compete with the outside world? I'm just curious, you know, the kind of culture you're creating. Both. Okay. Because I don't believe that they can't live in harmony. I think you can be competitive, I think you can be challenging, and you can work together on projects and deliver the best outcome for the customer. My, my underlying bugbear is... If we're not doing the best job for the business, for the customer, then it's other. Then we're just being greedy swines, and I think that's not what that's not what we're here. We're here to serve our customers, to get more customers, to make sure we deliver the results for them. And the only way we can do that, yeah, we can be hungry and we can be challenging and we can focus on certain products versus other products, but it, but they have to give the customer the result they want. Absolutely, and again, you know, the fact that the customer seems to have been forgotten by so many is a real disappointment. However, what what I am seeing is more and more founders, millennial, Gen Z, pushing back on the culture that they've had to endure for the last 10 years, where it's been this sort of rapacious chasing of uh, revenue at any cost. And it doesn't matter if you burn through the customer or you sell the wrong one, it's not your problem. You chuck it over the fence, it's CS's problem, and who cares? And it's led to a lot of burnout. It's led to a lot of customer churn. And it's led to the conditions now, I think, where we've got a lot of people, you know, 72% of people in tech are considering changing job this year. That kind of upheaval for the rest of us is devastating potentially. So we're seeing a shift, or I'm seeing a shift in terms of the ethos and the ethics of leaders and founders. I'm curious in terms of your own team, are you teaching them ethics? Are you teaching them values? The other 28% in tech just don't know they're not they're looking for another job yet. <laughs> uh, you know, there's more there's more exodus from tech jobs than I don't know where they're all going because they haven't all surfaced yet, but I guess that's the uh, that's the ne- the next impact. There'd be already been thousands, uh, almost tens of thousands, I think, of uh, redundancies, but those are going to happen in slew of, of them over the next two, three quarters. I always thought ethics was what um, was the boxer called Chris Eubank. Yeah. He was saying it's next to Sussex, it was ethics. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I'm injecting this the, the kindness, the gratitude, the appreciation, all the, the softer, nicer skills, nicer human behavior skills, that's what I'm teaching my team. That's what I want them to be. I want them to be nice people. You know, people buy from people they like and trust. 
I don't believe that. People buy from people who can solve their problems and fix their problems. But they, if, if you are a nice person and you can solve the problems, then it goes a hell of a long way. And I think that's, that's the environment that I'm, I'm building. I think people will buy from you if you can solve the problem because they want the job to be done done. It's very difficult for a customer to keep coming back if you keep constantly focused on their pain uh, and not generating enough focus on their better future and making them feel important and valued. And I I think far too uh, much emphasis in most organizations that I've ever uh, engaged with has been on the KPIs, on the money, on the revenue, um, and nowhere near enough on the human relationships. And the last few years has been really instructive because if you work the mathematics out of it, if you focus on building your medium to long-term pipeline, over about a six-month period, it starts taking care of all of your tactical short-term pipeline. But if you focus exclusively on your short-term pipeline, that medium and long-term pipeline never really gets developed because you're focused on being transactional. And what's really important to understand is the difference in profitability between a new customer and an expansion customer. The expansion customer can be anything up to about 900 times more profitable. I mean, why would you choose to go for one 900th of the profit for the same amount or, in fact, probably significantly more work? I also think that people are buying differently, certainly within the within the advertising space everything is very short-termist there's no long-term campaigns like there used to be you, you know in the old days of the newspaper you say well i'll buy this 52 weeks and uh, i'll see you next year to renew it now it's you know i want to do a four-day campaign and i just want to target the targeting becomes so niche and so tight and i just think it's crazy the idea of marketing is to reach as many of the audience you want to throw a blanket over as many of the people you want to reach the right people that you want to reach of course there's going to be some wastage in there but that's what you want to do you want to get that those targets of it in an area and throw a blanket over them whereas today they're just absolutely pebble dashing the internet seeing what they can find and mm. you know they because it's cheap and nasty they'll get a few responses and they'll get a return on their investment and they'll say that's the best way and it's like it's gone mad I think what's happened is people are so noisy, everyone's deafened to the message. And unless you can create precise targeting, and this is where I think, um, certainly in the B2B space, because that's predominantly my background, the, the list building is so important. The targeting is so important. There's no point putting the best salespeople on the wrong target. They're still going to fail. There's nothing, and it's not their fault. It's a, a simple matter of making a really piss poor decision up front um, and wasting a lot of money because uh, you're not testing, you're not challenging yourself, and you're also not willing to change your mind if you realize you were wrong. I see you know, people hanging on to uh, bad decisions for far, far too long. As a founder who's gone through all of this uh, trauma, what advice would you give to other founders who are uh, they will be facing this recession. There is, I, I have no doubt about it. I'm also not a big fan of listening to the news because it messes with your head. However, if I look at all the trends, our salespeople are going to have to sell in that environment. So I need my salespeople to be ready for that. And I want them to be resilient. I want them to be able to talk to the real issues that the customers are facing today. So 
around business acumen, around uh, understanding the moving parts of your customer's business. What, what sort of stuff have you been uh, teaching your people? I'll tell you what I'll teach them. I'll teach them if there's a recession, we're not taking part. I'll tell them that if you want to take part in that recession, you're very welcome to. And if you do, <laughs> is the business going to be up for sale or are you going to just be appointed liquidators directly? You know, if, if I look back at 9-11, 2007, 2012, we never struggled because people were still going on their holidays. People were, the restaurants were still full. The people still bought their supersized TVs. The, 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 the micro and macroeconomics were, were not going to affect somebody on their travel. That's why COVID was so brutal to us because it was the first time ever that they locked the airports and shut the planes off. So mm-hmm. I think as long as the as long as the airlines are still flying, as long as we don't go back into a lockdown, I think we're going to be absolutely fine because it's it, it, we've got history, we've got experience of dealing with that. I've still got the same objection notes I wrote in 2007 and eight. I did a lot of uh, physical challenges during that period to get us through to prove people what was was and wasn't possible. And I guess I'll have to get my trainers out again and do it again. <laughs> Are you ready for your ice bucket challenge? <laughs> Simon, this has been really instructive. Thank you. Talk to me about the book, Equanimity. You said that the first part was really a chronicle of the experience of watching COVID crumble your market and then a, a diary from October 2020, was it? February 2020. 2020 all the way through, yeah. So what prompted you to keep the diary in the first place? I don't know. I guess it was, it was like, if I write these things down, because they're going to come back, because it started off people were moaning and complaining, and I'm thinking, I'm just going to keep a record of this because this is <laughs> going to come back and bite me at some point if I, don't, if I, if I haven't got the, 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 the clear memory of what, what actually went on. And it was just... And then it came, became cathartic. You know, I was like, um, what have I done this week? What have I done this month? And then if you look at my LinkedIn sort of post-2022, in 2022, I've literally done a monthly roundup of what I've done as well. Because I also said to myself, through this experience, I'm not going to be the same man coming out of this that, that I went into it. I'm going to be different in what I do. So what's been your best development I've, I've, I've got a new lease of life. I've, I'm ticking off bucket list adventures. I'm enjoying myself. I'm having fun. I'm having fun with my teams. They're having fun again. They're traveling again. They're going on adventures again. All the things that were, you know, were switched off during uh, during COVID times. Also, I, I'm my day is filled with learning. I spend much more time listening and reading to to make sure that I am constantly developing my brain and you know and I'm using that time effectively there's a lot of stuff on my calendar which is just me I'm in the gym I'm listening to a podcast or I'm doing a podcast or I'm doing something or I'm reading I'm making sure that that comes first I'm spending a lot of time now doing one-to-ones with all the people in the business just talking to them about the things that are important to them just so I can get everybody on the same page so I know where what everyone's ambitions are and I can help them achieve those as well. That's lovely to hear. So what are the 
books, videos, audios, podcasts that have been uh, the most useful, the most instructive? So many. I do like Stephen Bartlett in his diary of a CEO. He has some interesting guests on there. He was at, at the Nudge Stock. Yeah. Very interesting. He's done, he's done really well. As long as he can do it for another, do it five more seasons, because he's done it five years and he's done really well. He's got to do it for 25 years, then then I'll really admire him. <laughs> what he's achieved in five years is unbelievable. Just, I mean, I'm reading a book at the minute by Elizabeth Gilbert called Big Magic. I don't know if you've read it. I haven't. You yeah, have. Book that you ever read. Wow. And it, and it's really. Elizabeth Gilbert. Yeah. It's, it's about this concept that. Um, you know, you have an idea, and suddenly someone else has that same idea, and they go and do it. But some of that is just, you know, timing and everything else. And we all have great ideas, but don't do anything about it. But there is actually some magic formula out there that there is a world full of opportunities, and maybe you get it presented to you, and you just think, "Oh, it's not for me. I can't do that." And then somebody else gets it as well, and they go, "Oh, oh, I like that idea. I think I'm going to run with it." And she came up with some really interesting, spooky, you know, woo-woo type stuff where she met this woman and they hugged each other. And at that point, her idea went from her to this other woman because they never discussed it. And they both wrote exactly the same book. <laughs> I mean, just genius. I do believe that there's lots of opportunity. And if you haven't got your eyes open, if you're not looking forward, looking for, looking for opportunities, you're going to miss them. You'll enjoy Seeing What's Next by Clay Christensen and Competing with Luck by him as well. Both of those are very interesting reads. Same sort of concept. He was the creator of the Jobs to be Done theory, and it's a really clever way of understanding the real buyer's journey and what drives people to buy your stuff. And he cites an example of one of the guys we've had on the podcast as well, Bob Mester doing an interview with uh, a, a customer who bought a what's it, memory foam mattress in Costco just spontaneously, it looked like. Anyway, the journey goes back three and a half, four years. Um, this guy not being happy with this overpriced mattress topper uh, that they bought that ended up sagging for him after six months. It was only when his wife started to get backache and neckache that suddenly they had permission to, uh, to buy this new mattress. And he'd done all the research. So it's, to all intents and purposes, for a Costco employee, it was just he touched it a couple of times and said, and went back and bought and got another one of those flatbed trolleys uh, to take it out. And that would have been it. But the reality is if you put invest the time understanding the customer, understanding their problem from as many different angles as possible, the solutions are really elegant and they're sustainable. I think we talked about this last time, but... You know, when I ask somebody why I buy from them, 95% of the people don't know why I actually bought, you know, yeah. why I made that purchase. But I think it's a really interesting exercise for most people to do is say, you know, why do you buy anything? And does the person you buy from know why you bought it? And this is where Rory Sutherland came up with something which I'm definitely going to steal. He's had credit from me three times, so it's mine now. <laughs> and it's a lazy why. What a brilliant concept. How often do we fall foul of the lazy why? We ask the customer, why do you buy? Oh, really liked you guys. Fine, off you go. And you've got nothing of any value. 
why are we having this problem? Oh, it looks like it might be this. So we throw a point solution at it uh, and a bit more technology. We throw another warm body at it and it doesn't go away. Why? Because we did the lazy way. Yeah. It's a really, really useful concept. Somebody asked me once, well, why did you, how did you dominate the in-flight magazine space? And I said, because I didn't like doing RFPs. So every time an RFP came up, we were so in, embedded in the organizations, we helped write the RFPs. So yeah. people couldn't beat us. You know, we, were, we, you know, we didn't wait till the, um, it was coming up for renewal to start improving it. We improved it from day one, and every month we'd sit down and we have a wash-up meeting and go, what, what can we improve about this thing? What can we do better? What can we do on the cover? What can we do here? How can we go back to the client and give them some fresh ideas? Right. So it sounds to me like part of your culture is innovation is everyone's responsibility. I think that's a great way of summing it up. Lovely. Okay. Being entrepreneurial is one of our qualities that we look for for people to say, look, this is your business. You're running this business now. I don't want to give it back. I don't want someone else to come and steal it off us. So you've got to run it and make sure that our clients not ha- not only happy with the things they think they need to be happy with, but what they don't know they need to be happy with. You know, it really is the Apple mentality, which is the clients haven't got a clue what they want, really. They know they want a magazine. They know they want to entertain it. But they don't really understand what the customers want, what their customers' customers want. And we spend a lot of time thinking about that all the time, coming back with ideas and going, do you know what? We've done a little bit of research and they want to see more cooking and they want to see more re- menu, uh, more uh, recipes. They want to see horoscopes. They want to, whatever it is, we need to bring these things in. To, you know, the crossword wasn't good enough. So we went to the New York Times and we got the New York Times crossword in, in some of the magazines because that's what the customers wanted to be challenged with. So I think the, the, the art of it is, is to make sure that you're always, always reinventing yourself. And again, this is extremely rare uh, because the majority of people are attached to what made them successful. Um, so when did you realize that was um, a strategy, a winning strategy for you? I don't think I ever did. I think only now when I look back and join the dots, I think that's what differentiated us. That's why we didn't lose a contract and we won 50-odd contracts over the, over the early 2000s. Because that's what we were doing. We were good at it. And people would come to us and they go somewhere else. And nobody would give them the same storytelling and the same narrative that we would. And th- this is really, really interesting. I was uh, chatting to uh, Simon Bowen um, earlier this year, actually. And we were going through one of his models, the Iron Triangle. And the Iron Triangle is a way of helping a customer to prioritize what they really want and to diagnose. Uh, what the true job to be done is and to prioritize whether time, resources or uh, outcome matter most. What's really interesting is when you start looking at outcome, they start by uh, saying that the tangibles are the really important things. But as you question them, more often than not, if you take away the intangibles, that's what is the key different point of differentiation. And that's the real must-have. The tangibles are table stakes. Everybody has that. They've all got 
readership levels or they've all got um you know uh, great graphic designers or they've all whatever it is that's all boring stuff that everyone kind of expects is the, the minimum just to turn up and it's the intangibles it's the experience it's the uh, depth of under- mutual understanding the intimacy um that makes all the difference and so uh, if you look back at the relationships that you built pre-covid how many of those, presumably, if they're still in post, uh, but how many of those have you been able to go back to and turn into customers for the new business, or are they a, a different target audience? Uh, a lot of them are, are, are now clients or ours, or you know, some of them are in hiatus because they've decided if they want to bring the magazine back, or if they have, if they want a digital offering. We're, but we're still working with all of them, and there's been a hell of a turnover in the industry. Yeah, of course. Most of the people that that we've dealt with are no longer any of the airlines. We're dealing with new people coming in who have got a completely different mindset, and uh, that's a new challenge now for us to just you know give them some education, some history as well. So, if someone wanted to join your team, what would they need to do? Phone me. Okay. And how do they get hold? And I do want I do want people to join the team. I want to you know I want people in Miami, in London, in Singapore. We're going to grow really fast over the next couple of years. If you think you know you, this is something that the, the thing that we've talked about is exciting for you and you want to be part of that that adventure, then come talk to us. So how can people get hold of you? Anywhere they can find me. LinkedIn, Instagram, Carrier Pigeon. <laughs> Telephone. Inc-global.com. Inc-global.com. And it's what, Simon at or Simon.Leslie at? Simon.Leslie at. Okay, and that's L-E-S-L-I-E. And phone number? 0207-625-0868. There you go, and it's plus four four if you're in Miami. Good stuff. Um, Simon, thank you. As usual, uh, instructive and uh, very interesting and entertaining. If you had one regret in business, what would it be? Regrets? I've had a few. <laughs> Confused and injured. Um, I don't believe in regrets. <laughs> I'm sorry to. Okay. Who will you um, the, the reason I ask is um, I, I was watching Dan Pink last uh, earlier this week and his new book on regret because it's indicative of values. And I'm just curious to I'm testing the thesis. So, you know, the stuff that you wish you hadn't done or you had done um, because it focuses our mind on what really matters. You know, there's, a, there's a saying in the book. And, and it's really set me up very well for, for the current trading, is that every opportunity, every good thing that ever happened to me was gift-wrapped with a problem. Yeah. And most people aren't prepared to unwrap the problem to get there. And so now when I get a problem, I think, good, there's something good that's about to happen. Right, uh, right. okay, so this is another observation, which is that you lean into problems. You don't lean out uh, away from them. No, um, there's good things there. Okay, very, very interesting. Excellent. Simon, thank you so much. Thank you. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, subscribe, tag somebody, leave a pleasant or even an unpleasant review on your favorite podcast. And if you're the founder of a tech company, 
about turning over 20 million plus. And what you really want to do is innovate your way through the recession that Simon is going to sell his way through. Um, then get in touch. I've got some ideas that work. Um, happy to share them with you. Uh, if you want to get hold of me, Marcus at laughs-last.com or telephone number plus 447515 937 221. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.